0: Welcome to my property NYC. This is the podcast where we'll talk about the history and the future of the New York City real estate market. My name is Anna Zahova and I'll be your host. Hello to everyone who is joining me for this episode of My Property NYC and thank you for the emails on my first interview with the real estate and construction attorney Mark Subkov. I'm glad to present you with another episode with him, this time on the subject of having a successful sales experience in New York City. Okay, so welcome Mark, great to have you here again.
1: Thank you, Anna. It's great to be back.
0: Okay. In this episode, I would like us to go over the process of selling a property in New York City. And First, I want to ask you, what's included in your service when a seller requests that you represent them in the sale of their home?
1: I like to think of our services as legal soup to nuts. What I mean by that is we we take control from the beginning of the transaction until the end of the transaction at the closing table and beyond. What does that mean? We prepare a contract of sale, negotiate it with buyer's counsel, review the title report, and assist in clearing any issues in that report, prepare the deed and the transfer forms, and coordinate to get to the closing table.
0: That's fantastic. And how long does it take for a seller to actually get to the closing table?
1: I usually get involved once the seller has identified a buyer and has accepted their offer or has an accepted offer. The amount of time it takes from start to finish depends on some different factors, such as how much negotiation is required for the contract, is the buyer obtaining financing? Because then the bank will, will get involved and they can take uh, many weeks to issue a commitment and clear the file for closing. Are there any issues in the title report that need to be cleared? And then finally, scheduling everyone's uh, around everyone's calendars and having a successful closing. Could take anywhere between 30 and 90 days, Anna.
0: Okay, thank you for clarifying this for us. What documents must a seller have in order to get to closing successfully for a condo and for a co-op?
1: Sure. For a condominium, the seller will have a deed, and so they need to provide a copy of that deed uh, to their attorney. And If they have their existing title report and policy from when they purchased, that can be helpful also to the buyer to speed the process of uh, getting to the closing. On the other hand, for a co-op, the seller needs a bit more. The seller will have to locate its original proprietary lease and the certificates of shares that were issued since a co-op is a corporation and not real property.
0: And what if one is selling a property that was inherited but the deed or shares have not been transferred yet?
1: That depends on how the person who has uh, passed away uh, left their estate. Uh, The easiest case would be if the property was already held in a trust, and then the trustee can execute the wishes of the trust. Otherwise, if there was a will, the will would need to be probated in order to get Uh, letters testamentary, and to execute on the issues of what the uh, decedent wanted in the will. And finally, if the decedent uh, passed away without a will, then an administrator needs to be appointed by the surrogate court in order to uh, transfer the property.
0: Okay. I want to ask you, is there something a seller should do before putting a property that has multiple liens on it for sale?
1: Well, the easiest thing, Anna, would be for the seller to pay off any liens.
0: That's right. However, what if it's a mortgage and also a third party is suing the owner over unpaid fees for construction work, for example?
1: Well, mortgages are very common and they get satisfied at the closing table. So that's not uh, a lien that uh, is a problem as long as uh, it's paid off and accounted for at the closing table. A lawsuit against a seller is a different issue. If the lawsuit is following a lien, a mechanics lien, that's been placed on the property, then that would be technically a foreclosure action against the property. And that would certainly have to be addressed at the time of closing because the potential foreclosure of the property is an encumbrance against the buyer's interest in the property. If it is not a lawsuit for foreclosure and it is simply a lawsuit against the seller, then perhaps the title company will provide title insurance but accept from the coverage any claims stemming from the lawsuit.
0: So the title company is going to be the one that's going to be fixing that issue before the closing, is that correct?
1: The title company is going to identify through their title searches whether there is an encumbrance against the property, and then, yes, they'll provide instructions to the party's attorneys on how to deal with that uh, encumbrance.
0: Okay, great. Let's now look at a scenario that happens quite often. If the seller has accepted an offer, but then another offer comes in with more favorable terms, what would you advise the seller to do?
1: Well, it depends on what you mean by more favorable terms, Anna.
0: Yes, sure. For example, it's a cash offer.
1: Well, cash offers are highly sought after, as one can readily uh, figure out because there's no financing involved, no uncertainty. So if you have one deal that includes the buyer getting financing and the other that's all cash, as long as the contract has not been signed by both sides, the seller is legally free to take the more favorable deal, in this case, without a mortgage contingency.
0: And on the contrary, we know that sellers want certainty. What would be the best way to structure a contract to make sure that the buyer would not back out without a monetary obligation?
1: Well, the cleanest transaction from the seller's perspective is to not include a mortgage contingency in the contract. Then, the Buyer can't back out of the contract without forfeiting its deposit unless the seller can't deliver marketable title.
0: Okay, and is it rare that a buyer would agree to such terms?
1: To be honest, it really depends on the market that you're in. I've seen plenty of deals here in Manhattan where buyers contract without a mortgage contingency, and agree to pay all cash. Now, sometimes they don't necessarily have the cash, all of it, and they'll go out and get financing. But from the seller's perspective, it's considered an all-cash deal because there's no mortgage contingency baked into the contract.
0: Okay, great. And I have another question for you. If a couple is getting separated or divorced and they're looking to sell their home, it could be somewhat hard for them to come to an agreement on many things. What would be the most effective way to get them to the closing?
1: That's right. Marital relations and divorce is a whole uh, complicated uh, topic and set of issues. From my perspective, as the real estate attorney, I... I need to have both the husband and wife on the same page. If they are in the process of a divorce, then there needs to be uh, a, an agreement. Either it's a separation agreement or some other directive that I can rely upon in order to, uh, to carry out their wishes. If they're not divorced and they're just living apart, uh, then, from my perspective, they're still husband and wife, and so it's 50/50, and they're going to share in the proceeds of, of of the sale. If they tell me something different, I say please go go see your mar- a marital attorney and get something in writing.
0: Okay, and you mentioned once that you were previously asked to deposit the proceeds of such sale and such situation to one of their accounts, and you suggested a different alternative.
1: Right. So I had been representing a couple with their construction law uh, issues in, in, in New York. Actually, they owned a beautiful brown, brownstone in Brooklyn. And subsequently, they decided to sell the house, and they also mentioned to me that they were living apart. So later, when the proceeds from the closing were contemplated, the husband said, oh, you can just deposit it into uh, such and such account, and then I'll share with the wife. Um, But from my perspective, I wanted to make sure that the proceeds, which were being split 50-50, there was no dispute about that were sent directly by me to each of my clients. And so I cut two checks in equal amounts and sent them to each one directly to the husband and to the spouse.
0: Okay, fantastic. And I want to ask you about early possession. And I've shared with you that in one of um, my cases, I've had a situation where The seller accepted an offer and the seller also agreed that the buyer can move prior to the closing. A few days later, the seller's attorney advised that the seller is no longer willing to accept the early moving condition and that the buyer can occupy the property only after the closing. Why should the seller not allow an early possession?
1: You know, there's an old saying that possession is nine-tenths of the law, and I think it really applies in, in in this scenario, Anna, that you're describing. If a seller were foolish enough to let a buyer move in before the closing, there's no easy way to be sure that the buyer's ever going to close, because the buyer is now in possession, and so. You don't want to let the buyer move in until the buyer pays to own the home.
0: Right, and then you most likely have to deal with an eviction, is that correct?
1: Well, evictions are a really thorny, whole different ball of wax. I try not to get involved in evictions, but that's exactly the reason why you don't want to let the buyer live in your house until she buys the house so that you don't have to go to court. I've heard those kinds of proceedings can take enormous amounts of money and time and uncertainty.
0: That's right. And let's now talk about the closing. Is there something else that a seller should bring to a closing besides a couple sets of keys?
1: (laughs) That's a fair question. One thing both the buyer and the seller Must bring, and I always remind them, and sometimes they forget, is a government issued photo ID. You'd be surprised how people don't always have that, and the closer will require that to submit with the mortgage loan documents for the HUD regulations. Other than that, a seller really doesn't have to bring much else. If they brought their proprietary lease and their shares in the event of a co-op, then they're covered. They shouldn't have to write any checks, uh, except maybe a gratuity for the closer. Always a good recommendation to bring your checkbook and a pen.
0: And that was actually the last question that I had for you, and I wanted you to share with our listeners. Where can they find you? What is the best way to reach you?
1: Thank you, Anna. This has been phenomenal. Contact me at my law offices. You can always email me at info at dot com.
0: Fantastic. Thank you for joining us and sharing all this valuable information with our listeners. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of My Property NYC. Please leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe to our channel.